All right, today's scripture lesson comes from uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He was gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a great delight and joy to be able to share the good news with you all for the next three weeks, and uh, also looking forward to our young adults and college students being able to join together for the retreat in two weeks. Uh, Though you'll be missing here, I'm glad that you'll have the time of that extended fellowship prayer and in the Word. And today we're looking at Luke chapter 19. The gospel, the entire gospel of Luke, really is a, a compilation that Luke the writer has put together of all the eyewitness accounts from people, uh, the, the apostles, the ministers of the word, and he put it together in an orderly account, orderly account so that people can be certain of who Jesus is and what he has done. Right? Luke is a historian and a theologian. Um, seems to be a little feedback here. Oh gosh, Pastor Paul's here. We just become him. When we... <laughs> no, I wanted to say that just uh, as a shout out to him, but. But in in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to find a lot of stories of individuals where Jesus is reaching out particularly to the marginalized, the weak, and the poor. Luke loves to emphasize how Jesus cared for the marginalized, the weak, and the poor. And and it's not just Luke's idea to show the world through this Gospel account of, of his care, but because the Scripture writers are moved by the Holy Spirit, this is a genuine revelation that Jesus really did care for the marginalized, the weak, and the poor. But some of the people that he reached always didn't meet those three categories. They were not always the marginalized, the weak, and the poor. For instance, like the person that we're meeting this morning in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, he was probably most certainly marginalized in a society. He may have been weak, but he certainly was not poor. And and through our narrative today, we can see evidence of of genuine faith. Because one of the things that I hope to challenge and equip you all this morning is to examine for yourselves of whether you truly believe and whether there is certainty that you can call yourself a believer in Christ with the hope of eternal life. And my hope is that you can have that certainty. But I think the Bible never simply tells us who you are without telling you how to live as a fruit of who you are. And that's what we want to emphasize this morning. So join with me in prayer as we go into the preaching of God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together once again, and it is by your grace that we can gather to hear your word. We pray, Father, that through the word that is preached, 
your spirit would work in us, that you would empower the speaker so, so that it may not be of my opinion, but it can be the word of God planted into the minds and hearts of those who hear today. And I pray, Father, that you would give our church, the congregation, humility to sit at the feet of your word, regardless of who it is that may be preaching, that they, we can all recognize that as the word of God is faithfully expounded, it is a spirit at work for us to be in obedience to our holy and gracious God, our King, and live a life that is pleasing to you. So help us here, Lord. Have mercy on us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, recently I've been studying the the book of Leviticus as a way of uh, the sermon series that I've been doing with our youth group students. And in the Old Testament, there are five major offerings that Israel was instructed to give to the Lord. Uh, These five offerings always included blood of an animal, if animals were included, because many of these offerings were something that's taking the place of the offerer, where a life of the offerer is spared through the death of another. And in the Old Testament case, it would be the animals. And so out of these five, first there was the, um, the burnt offering where you would kill and offer up an entire bull uh, on the altar of God as, as one's devotion to God. You could offer up a lamb or a goat if you couldn't afford a bull, or you could offer up a bird if you couldn't afford even a, a lamb or a goat. Uh, the second offering that's mentioned is the grain offering, which is also sometimes called the tribute offering. It's an offering of fine flour mixed with oil and spice as a way of saying thank you, God. You're giving God the the gift of thanksgiving through the offering, and and the priest would take which you have brought, a portion of it on the altar. It would burn up to the Lord, and the remaining portion the priest himself would take for him and his family to enjoy. The third offering is called the peace offering, or sometimes it's known as fellowship offering. And this is where... Uh, you, you bring the animal of sacrifice, but only the fat, the kidneys, and the liver are sacrificed to God, while the meat is actually cooked for the family and the friends to gather together and enjoy a barbecue. It, it is called a fellowship offering because you're, you're gathering together to say, we're acknowledging what God has done for us, and we're joining together as a community of God's people, celebrating, as we often do, over a meal. A portion of that flesh is also given to the priest so that the priest and his family can have something to live on. The fourth offering is called a sin offering, where an animal is sacrificed on behalf of of a person who has committed some sort of unintentional sin. And like the peace offering, only the fat, the kidneys, and the liver are burnt up. And depending on who it is that sinned, sometimes, for example, if it was the leader of the community... While the fat, the liver, and the kidneys are burned to the Lord, the entire animal, the carcass, the flesh, the meat, it's thrown away. It is not given. It is not eaten. It is thrown away because when a leader sins, there's not, it's not something that you can say, well, here's my sin that I give to you, God. But it's supposed to display a sense where we throw sin out the way, no matter how precious it may seem. But if, if it was a sin done by a congregation or a layperson, then the portion of the meat is given to the priests who have performed the duties to eat. And the fifth offering, which is very important in connecting to our story this morning, is the guilt offering, which is sometimes known as restitution or reparation offering. This is where you offer a sacrifice because you committed a breach of faith and sinned in the holy things of God, where you have misappropriated sacred things or you have wronged your neighbor. In this sacrifice, you offer up a ram that costs as much as the value of the thing that you have desecrated 
or how much, however much you may have taken from a neighbor. It's supposed to be a proper and fitting compensation for the damage that you have done. But in addition to repaying back in full of the thing that you have taken or desecrated, you add on 20% more to the value of the very thing which you are paying for. So you pay back in full of what you have taken, and you add an additional 20%. This was to ensure the Israelites that they truly understand the guilt that they have committed, the sin and the damage that they have done in this, the holy, sacred things of God, as well as the damage to the relationship with your neighbors. And it's also to show the people that restoration will always cost more than the damage that was done. To restore brokenness will always be more costly than the actual act of damaging something. It's also important to note throughout these sacrifices that God sees our sin against our neighbor as a breach of faith against the Lord. That to sin or to do harm against someone, a person creating the image of God, and more specifically those who are within the community of God, it is a breach of faith against God. So if I have problems with people, God has a problem with me. Of all the people who should recognize and understand that the value of sacrifice and offering and gift and reparation, it is Zacchaeus who seemed to have understood all this. He sought to make right in his wrong. But what happened to him that caused such a change in his heart? How is it that this person in one conversation all of a sudden became this other person? And why is it so important that, that we value and understand this action as a display of genuine faith for us? We'll answer these questions by the following three points that we'll cover this morning. Number one, we'll see that Zacchaeus was sought. Number two, we'll see that Zacchaeus believed. And number three, we'll see that Zacchaeus restored. Zacchaeus was sought, Zacchaeus believed, and Zacchaeus restored. So as Jesus and his followers were traveling toward Jerusalem, um, and as he enters into Jerusalem, it's the beginning of the Passion Week. On a Friday, he'll be crucified after an unjustly trial. Uh, they, ha they have to go through the city of Jericho in order for them to get to Jer uh, Jerusalem. And the text here tells us that he was passing through. To the followers who were following Jesus, this was simply a path to a destination and nothing more. Jericho was only a road that they have to get to because ultimately their goal is Jerusalem. But as the story unfolds, we see that Jesus is constantly and graciously seeking people to save them. That their intentions and purposes of going to these roads and these cities. And Luke is emphasizing that the Son of God came to seek and save the lost. Just before this passage, the, at the end of chapter 18... As Jesus and his followers were about to enter into Jericho, we see this story of a blind beggar hearing from the crowd that Jesus is passing through. And he cried out in a loud voice saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds around them were telling him, you got to be quiet. No one cares about you. You're just a blind, poor beggar. Don't bother this man who's walking that everyone's following. And yet the blind beggar cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I love how Luke is showing that that particular blind man had better sight than the people who actually had sight. Because they were, he was able to see who Jesus was by the expression of his faith. 
while most of the people following him at the point may have just done it because it was just a cool thing to do, or he's a miracle worker, or he fed them food at one point. But this blind beggar seemed to have understood more than others, and he was able to see Jesus more clearly than others. So Jesus stopped, healed the blind beggar, restoring his sight because of his faith. This man, after being healed, would then be one of these followers that would follow Jesus through Jericho and even into Jerusalem. But Zacchaeus was not a man of faith. He merely saw the crowd following him, and perhaps he had heard some things about Jesus, but he certainly didn't know him nor believed in him. To to Zacchaeus, Jesus was merely just, I want to see what's going on. It was just out of mere curiosity that he wanted to see Jesus. Like the way people kind of stop to see a commotion that's happening in the middle of the street, or the way that drivers slow down just to see the wreckage that happened across on the other side. You don't know anything about it, but you just want to know what happened. You just want to know what's happening. And that's who Jesus was to Zacchaeus. Not an interest of following, but just to see what is the commotion all about. To Zacchaeus, there was no crying out to Jesus. There was no cry for mercy. There was no recognition of his sins. There was no sign of faith. And yet, when this man climbed the sycamore tree to get a view of Jesus, Jesus came to right where he was, looked up at the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus then welcomed and received Jesus joyfully into his home. We're told that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector in his profession, but he was a chief tax collector. Another way of saying it was he was filthy rich. Like the type who would buy individually wrapped ice cubes rich. It's a real thing, by the way. You can buy like 30 of them for like $400, $500. Why? Just because you have the money for it. That was Zacchaeus. He had so much money that he would just be able to spend and buy on anything that people didn't even want or need, just because he could. And just because of the the choosing of this profession, just because he chose to be a chief tax collector, he was marginalized and hated by the Jewish society. We don't know anything about Zacchaeus but two things. He was small in stature, and he was a chief tax collector. And the entire crowd, upon seeing him, recognized him and labeled him as a sinner. And it's certainly not because of his height, but because, Zacchaeus, you chose to be a tax collector. So he was hated by his Jewish community, and really rightfully so. Because back in those days, tax collectors were known to take more than what was required of them. If they were required only to take 10% of the income in every household, they would demand 20. So that that additional 10% can go right into their pockets. So they would make themselves rich by simply defrauding their own citizens, their own countrymen. So to the Jews, he was a traitor. And to the Romans, he was a bought servant. And I'm sure Zacchaeus in that kind of life probably didn't have many friends, if any. He probably only had people who wanted to be around him so that they can benefit from him. And yet here's the man of the hour, the crowd who's following, everyone who's following stopping to where he is on the tree and saying, I see you, and I'm seeking you. Friends, this morning I want us to ask if we have such a heart for people as Jesus has displayed to a tax collector. That we have a yearning and desire to seek people out for the sake of salvation. 
Will we be willing to seek those out, even for those in the community that the, that, that the community would say deserves the worst? Will we seek people out that we would say is a plague to our society? You and I, we no longer live in a time where the gospel is understood and generally known. Despite the wealth of information that is out there, less people are reading and less people are seeking for the truth. We look more to comedians than we do to journalists and researchers and pastors for the truth. And it seems like in our day and age, more people know a perverted version of the gospel than an actual gospel that we see in the Bible. And as a result of just wide acceptance of this perverted version of the gospel, we end up easily accepting and easily tolerating sinful lifestyles, letting people simply live as they want without any seeking for them to know the truth. And so Christians and churches claim themselves to be allies to certain people groups of preference and orientation while still claiming that their lifestyles and their things are sinful. We need to be very careful about how we label things as sin. There's a difference between something that is sinful, a complete, you know, it, it's, it's a, a breaking of God's holy law to things that are simply bad for us. You know, and there are things that are bad for us because we're living in a sin-filled world. One of these days in eternity, I'm sure I can eat a whole cake by myself without worrying about what that sugar is going to do to my heart and my body. But then there are things that are actually sinful where God has clearly shown this is against my holy law and my creation order. And the consequence of something that is sinful without faith and repentance is eternal death. And unless, dear friends, you are convinced of the consequence of sin and you are filled with love for people, you're never going to pe call people out on their sins. You might be convinced that sin equates to hell, but if you don't have love for people, then you're going to stand yourself on the high ground and say, I am wise, you are foolish. You might stand and declare love for people without convinced of the consequence of sin and to simply say, all are welcome to live as they want, as long as it makes you happy. But unless you're convinced of both the consequence of sin and you are filled with love for people, you're not going to call people out on their sin. You're not going to seek them out to know the truth but you're going to stay in a place of contentment where lost people will stay lost or you're going to be feeling very superior of how intelligent or smart or wise you are while the rest of the world is foolish and stupid. But this is not how Christians are supposed to live. We are supposed to seek the lost. You're not going to seek people for salvation if you're, unless you're convinced that they need to be saved. We're supposed to seek people who live in contrary to the gospel. We're supposed to seek people who are actively living in sin. We're not saying you need to change before you come to this place. We're supposed to go out there for people who have no signs of faith, no signs of remorse or repentance to say, I am following the footsteps of my great shepherd who sought me when I didn't even seek for him. Because he is still seeking and saving the lost. Jesus cared more about the lost being found than how the society would view him. People grumbled that he had become a guest to a sinner, but he didn't let those voices stop him. Instead, he saw Zacchaeus, 
sought him out so that salvation can come to his home. And because Jesus sought Zacchaeus, we see that Zacchaeus believed, which brings us to our second point. A man who at once had no faith in Jesus has now become a faithful follower of Jesus. And we don't know what type of conversation may have gone uh, that, that, you know, that have, may have happened in Zacchaeus' home. We don't know how much time has passed from verse 7 to verse 8 where Jesus sought Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree and Zacchaeus made this profession of Jesus as Lord. But knowing Jesus as a prophet and, and, the, and the patterns of how the prophets have, have preached and the messages that he had spoken throughout the gospel, I, I would imagine that a conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus would have included a confrontation of Zacchaeus' sin because Jesus came to save him. See, people who are right with God are not lost. It's those who are not right with God who are lost. And those who are not right with God need to be saved. Mark's account of the gospel, he, he summarized the, the preaching, the, the message of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 15 in the gospel of Mark. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Where we see throughout Christ's preaching that repentance and faith had to be present. Meaning, if you genuinely come to Jesus, there is a message of love and grace with an invitation for you to simply come and see who he is and what he has done. But you come to realize as you come to Jesus that love and grace are confrontational. It is not an it's not a, a, a unconditional acceptance, but love and grace will confront you, demanding you to change the way you think, to change your actions, your behaviors, your thoughts, calling you to change, calling you to repent. That's what love does. As I see, you know, when my children were young, and they would play with the wall sockets. And, and out of either impulse or, or uh, out of curiosity, that you know, they would try to stick things in. And I go, no, you need to change the way you think about a wall socket. It is not a toy. And so at, out of love, I tell my daughter, yeah, this might make you happy if you try it. Or it might make you feel satisfied to see certain things fit into certain places. But no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Because if I did, I probably wouldn't have any children anymore. <laughs> That was dark. <laughs> but what we see is that love and grace are confrontational. They do demand us to change. They do demand us to recall or, or be transformed, to no longer be what you are. You're called to be something else. Someone said, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he didn't want to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to repentance. So friends, this morning, as you examine your own lives, let me ask you, have you ever been confronted by the Lord Jesus? Have your sins have ever been confronted by him? Heard him tell you in the things that you have pursued after saying, no, don't do that. Heard him convict you in the things that you have already done to say you need to turn around and ask for mercy and forgiveness. If you have never been confronted by the Lord and you've been merely coming to Jesus with this picture of unconditional acceptance with no repentance whatsoever, then I have to ask you whether you have really been following Jesus as Lord 
or whether you have created some sort of Jesus in your mind that will never disagree with you, never stand as a king over you, but simply to say, I'm a king who just wants you to be happy and do whatever you want to do. The irony, of course, is that the more people have pursued their happiness, the less happy people have become because we were made more than just our innate desires. We're made for God's glory and to worship him. And so if you have not been following Jesus as Lord, genuinely as Lord, one day you're going to have to answer to him in judgment. Zacchaeus knew he was lost. He knew he needed to be saved. And he was convinced that Jesus was the very Savior who can make him right with God. He was the very one who can make sure that he is no longer lost. And for those of us who ever felt lost, for those of us who ever were convinced that we needed to be forgiven, Understand the joy that comes in repentance. The freedom when we are able to say to God, forgive me and have mercy on me. Not because I deserve it, but because I know you are a forgiving God, because I know you're a merciful Father. And so I can come to you because you have invited me. And so for those of us who felt lost, those of us who ever were convinced that we needed to be forgiven, understand the joy of genuinely repenting. Because we know with repentance, there's the acceptance and restoration. And how wonderful it is as Christians, we can confidently say we are no longer identified nor determined by our sin. That God no longer sees us as we were, but he sees us as what we are becoming in Christ. That he already sees you as what you will be in times of glory. Because you are in Jesus and he stands as your representative. He sees you like he sees his son. How freeing and wonderful it is to stand in the presence of God, to know with great assurance and confidence, you love me like the way you love the righteous, holy, sinless Jesus Christ. Because I find my identity in him and no longer in the things of this world, nor in my sins. And yet... Zacchaeus had the right professions and he came to this faith and as a result, people grumbled. When they saw, that peop- when they saw how Jesus wanted to associate with Zacchaeus, it says in verse 7, they all grumbled. No one was happy that this chief tax collector came to faith. How easy it is to think of ourselves being saved, yet how difficult to think that others can be saved as well. Friends, would you celebrate when a sinner becomes a saint? When a sinner professes his or her belief in Christ as Lord, what if that person was your enemy? What if that was a person who had defrauded you or stole from you, cursed you? Would you rejoice if they rejoiced in the Lord? If they stood in one of these seats, raised their arms in songs of praise to God, and they looked so happy because they're worshiping God, would you rejoice in that conversion? Or would you demand that they still need to pay the price of all of their wrongdoings against you in order for you to accept them in Christ? Truly, God is far more merciful than we ever could be. And we are far more prone to anger than we like to admit. In our nature, we love sin and we hate sinners. When God so infinitely hates sin, but loves sinful people dearly. 
And here we see Zacchaeus, who was a betrayer to his own people and a slave to Rome, standing now as a model of genuine faith for all believers for all times. How do we know that he really believed? What is the evidence that he truly gave his allegiance to God and kept his faith to the Lord instead of breaching his faith to God? He sought to make right in his wrongs. He restored to those whom he had defrauded. What is a sign that you are a genuine believer? Can you say with great confidence that you truly believe and that you can genuinely have the hope of assurance that there is eternal life beyond this time? What gives you that assurance? To Zacchaeus and the people around him, and for us as Christians seeing this story, it is because he sought to make right in his wrong and restore to those whom he had defrauded. After spending much time with Jesus, he stands before Jesus and the crowd that is in his household, and he says, half of my goods I am giving away to the poor. Now, this wasn't even asked of him, but he wanted to be generous. He was a marginalized person in the society, and presumably he wanted to now care for those who were marginalized, just as this teacher cared for the one who was marginalized. Half of his goods, no matter how rich you are, half of anything is a lot of wealth. A lot of possessions. And he's saying, I'm giving it to the poor. To those other people who are poor and weak, I want to love them and help them as much as I've been helped by this person. And knowing that he probably or most definitely has defrauded people, declared to restore it fourfold. Unlike the Levitical law that required him to add 20% more to the value, Zacchaeus decided to add 300% more to the value, four times more than what he took from people. He understood that the cost of restoration will always be more than the damage that he has done. But after encountering the Lord Jesus and seeing the price that God would pay to restore the brokenness that he has endured, as well as restoring the fellowship that, that he can have with God, giving away half of his goods and repaying his wrongs fourfolds was not a loss to him. You know, it, it is going to be costly, and it is very costly. To give away half of your goods and repaying people four times more than what you took from them is a very costly thing to do. But it is not a loss to seek reparation when one has gained restoration with God. It will be costly, dear friends, to restore broken relationships. It will cost you greatly to restore and make right in your wrongs. For some of us, that might mean we're going to end up losing our jobs. Because you took that career from deceit and lies. It might mean that it's going to cost you your reputation and your status. It's going to put some hindrances to your relationships. But if you, gained, but if you have gained restoration with God through Jesus, there is truly much to gain when you seek to make things right in your wrongs. Though we lose and it is costly to make things right, there is still a gain for us who are obedient and follow. And because Zacchaeus responded in this way, Jesus validates his faith. Today, salvation has come to this house since he is also son of Abraham. Once a non-believer, he is now a true believer, declared as a son of Abraham, not because he was a Jew, but because he truly believes. He is a son of Abraham because Jesus came to seek him and save him. For the genuine sons of Abraham are not by flesh, but are children of promise. And so, friends, 
can you say that salvation is in your homes? You might be a household of right profession with good Sunday attendance. But are you holy as God is holy? Holiness has never been an abstract idea. From the time of Israel in the Old Testament to Christians in the 21st century, holiness is not just this idea of what we're supposed to be, but is manifested in the way that we relate to people, through the way you talk to people, through the way you talk in general, and even the way that you eat is supposed to distinguish you from the rest of the world to show I am a holy person because I belong to a holy God. So holiness is not just an idea. It is the way we live and often manifested in the way we relate to people. So are you holy as God is holy? Though you proclaim the right things, do you seek to make right when you have done wrong? When you hear that you have hurt someone deeply because of a gossip or rumor that you have created, will you go and reconcile with the one that you have hurt? That you would apologize for the lack of wisdom on your part? Friends, I'm afraid in so many conversations we have used the term care and concern as a guise to talk about someone behind their backs. What we need to start doing instead of talking about people is we need to learn how to talk to people. Learn how to lovingly confront someone so that we can give people the opportunity to change their ways and even to apologize to you. Now, if you are threatened or if you feel threatened by the person that you're con- you want to confront, then yeah, get people involved. Help, ask us pastors to get involved and to help you. But if it's simply a weird quirk or simply something that is uncomfortable, I would ask of you to be a bit more courageous and loving to talk to those individuals and not spread that person and staple a scarlet letter upon their, their chest to display in our ministry or your schools or your homes or wherever it may be. When you have taken something that doesn't belong to you, will you not get fair compensation for what you have taken and the further damage that it may have caused? That you're willing to give more than what you have taken. It's a costly thing, but my, I'm, I'm taking the effort, I'm taking the cost, I'm paying the cost because I want to restore this broken relationship between you and I. To show you how genuinely sorry I am for the thing that I've done against you. And to understand I'm trying to make things right between us. My reputation may have been soured a little. But I care about this more than what what I am before the eyes of others. When you have lost your temper and expressed anger at a person who didn't deserve it. Will you beg for forgiveness and express your sorrow for how you have hurt your loved ones. Because in that moment you are not in control of your emotions. Or when you're confronted for your wrongdoings, will you automatically put up a defense? Or would you take the time to at least consider and ask for forgiveness when you are clearly in the wrong? For us as Christians, it does go beyond that. Because sometimes we need to make things right because of other people's wrongs. You may have heard that a major Protestant denomination has been found turning a blind eye and even covering up pastors committing grievous sexual sins. And as a result of these findings, many will probably be fired. Some of them may be even put to jail. And this happened because these perpetrators did not confess. They did not seek to make things right. Worse, they hid it. And some of them even intimidate the very victims whom they abused. 
What would have happened if these pastors, these ministers, sought to make things right in their wrongs? It may have even prevented the abuse from happening. Because sexual sins just don't happen. They're happening because of a lot of things prolonging in the past. And even if they have committed these grievous offenses, perhaps it would have spared the victims years of trauma. May not have solved it immediately, but I'm sure it would have brought some sort of solace to see a man is taking responsibility for his actions and is willing to pay the price so that I don't have to pay as a victim. There's also a question in, in stories like these where we ask whether these pastors were truly Christians. And they could convert later on and display genuine evidence of faith, but in that moment, could we really say that they were Christians? It's hard to say. But the way that we, our church, handle this type of sin is we, for a moment, treat that individual like they're outside of our believing community. We need to ask you to refrain from taking the communion. We cannot allow you to come and pray in front of people or minister to people. We will not allow you to preach. You have lost the trust of the congregation. You have breached the faith in the Lord. And unless we can see genuine repentance coming out of you, we're going to see you as if you're not one of us. That's how we handle things as a church, to help those sinful people to see the severity of their offense in hopes that they can repent and perhaps believe in Jesus for the first time. And if it is a case of abuse, with good indication and earnest investigation, we as a church believe that God has given the civil government a sword for a reason, to judge and punish evil. We as believers, we seek to right all wrongs, but especially our wrongs. If we have done wrong against another person, we shouldn't let it slide or let it wait, hoping that time's going to forget what we have done. We need to strive to make things right because that's what repentance is. That's how we know we're genuinely repenting. As we say to the Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me. We go to those whom we offended and we say the very words, forgive me for what I've done against you that you would show mercy and grace toward me. We're turning away from the wrong to make it right. That's how we know we're genuinely repenting. Because we're striving to make things right in the wrongs that we have done. And it is so hard and costly to be humble. But remember what Jesus did to this tax collector, this chief tax collector that turned his life around from being a greedy person to a generous person, that turned him from being entitled to now restoring it's something that Zacchaeus in this moment probably didn't know if in full. But we know as Christians today that God paid the price to restore us for the damage that we have caused. The price of restoration will always be more costly than the damage. And the price was the life of his beloved and begotten son. For the blood of the son of God was the only thing that could restore a broken relationship with God. All those Old Testament sacrifices of animals being killed and their blood being spilled were foreshadowed to what Jesus would do. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. They're mere reminders to us that we're sinful. But it was pointing forward to what Jesus would do on the cross. To us, it's the past. That he would do away with the conscience of sin. That, that we can stand without guilt and be free to worship and to understand 
that even when we have done wrong, we can confess freely that there is a freedom for us to repent and to look upon God, to, to recognize our faults and our sins and our weaknesses and how we have hurt people. And yet God is saying, I forgive you. You are secure in my kingdom. I love you. Now go and make right with those whom you have hurt because when, when, I, my, when my relationship is restored to you, you lose nothing and you only have more to gain. The price of restoration will always be more costly than the damage. And no matter whatever cost I have to pay for the wrong that I have done, I'm never going to give up my children for you. I'm never going to give up my children for any of the wrongs that I have done. And yet we see this is exactly what God has done for us. To restore us. To restore our fellowship with him. To create in us new person. So that when we have done wrong, we can simply say, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I want to make things right. When we live a life of such humility, doesn't that make Christ so beautiful before the eyes of others? When we live in such humility, doesn't that honor our God so greatly to say, I treasure you above my reputation. I follow you beyond what people may think of me. Friends, this morning, if you feel like you are far too gone, remember that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. So for those of you in this room who do not believe, I hope that you're hearing the words that Jesus said to Zacchaeus today. Hurry and come down. We believe and don't refuse. And if you have been found, make proper reparation for the sake of restoration with your neighbors, friends, family, and anyone that you have wronged. The price that Jesus paid for us gives us an inheritance that we cannot lose. And we have only to gain when we follow Jesus and confess our wrongs. Don't live in the enslavement of your guilt, but free you are... You are free to confess and live a life of humility that makes Jesus beautiful and live a life that honors our God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the inheritance that we cannot lose because it is secure in your grasp. As we come to Jesus, we truly receive far more than we may have imagined. And even though the life of obedience in this world can be costly, it is still never a loss when we seek to do what is right, when we seek to live a life of obedience to you. So give us the grace, O oh Lord, to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help us to live a life that can truly and faithfully testify to what Jesus has done for us. And may you, Lord, allow us to be witnesses of lives being transformed, sinners becoming saints. For that is the mission that you are continuing. That is the work that you are still doing. And as a church that we can follow and labor with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time with a song of praise.